NBC Sports presents... of the United States Football League. Today, live from RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., it's the Chicago Blitz versus the Washington Federals. This is the scene live in RFK Stadium. George Allen on the sidelines for the first time here since 1977. Across the way, Ray Yock coaching here after 12 years in the Canadian Football League as head coach of the Washington Federals. A drizzly cold day, not unlike the kind of weather you would expect here in RFK Stadium in late October or early November. It feels like football weather. Hello, I'm Jim Lampley, and I'll be honest with you. I will wait to see how many of you are that anxious to see football in spring, but everything I've seen and heard in the past three weeks leads me to believe that this experiment, the United States Football League, has a great chance of flying. Clearly, in my view, there are enough pro football players to go around for this league to field a credible product. And clearly, there are enough big-name football coaches, some of them with long-standing identities in American football, who are willing to commit themselves to this project. The rest is up to you. But if you're going to stick with us today, you're going to see a lot of new faces and a fascinating storyline. One of the new faces, Lee Corso, who is working here with us at ABC for the first time, formerly the head coach at the University of Indiana, and one of about two dozen college football football coaches whose contributions to American higher learning have been terminated in this past uh, fall football season. Lee, very nice to have you with us. We're going to see in the personalities of George Allen and Ray Yuck, two entirely different men, one of them well-known to Americans, one of them not known at all. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody knows George Allen. They've heard about him. He's a fine football coach, but when you get down to it, I've known Ray Yuck for about 10 years, and I'm very impressed with him. He's an intense individual. He looks a lot older than he is, you know, but that's because he was a head coach a long time. He come out of the Canadian League with Edmonton and Winnipeg. He knows how to win. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get going, friends. How you doing? It's Tim Hanlon. Good Seats Still Available is the name of the podcast. And uh, it's the curious little journey that we're on each and every week, uh, despite all the odds against it, uh, into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by and uh, saddle up, uh, because here we go. We're going to the old and original USFL, and it's a kind of a, an interesting time uh, to go back uh, to the original uh, version of said league that is now uh, fumfering along. Uh, d- depending on your perspective, it's either off to a gigantically, blazingly uh, interesting start, or it's uh, you know kind of uh, out of the gate, similar to other recent. Uh, challenger football league exploits such as the AAF and the second version of the XFL, obviously the third version coming next year. Interesting stuff, no doubt. Uh, Birmingham uh, came out pretty uh, nicely in terms of crowd size uh, for the first ever game. Uh, It's uh, obviously uh, a little less so as the weeks uh, progress, but um, we'll never forget the original USFL. We'll always look for reasons to get into that. And um, this week, uh, an excuse has uh, materialized and we're happy for it. Uh, the uh, writer that you need to know is J- Jake Russell. He's our guest this week. He, a longtime writer for the Washington Post, a, a lot of sports type stuff in particular, 
great article uh, about a week ago on April 15th that I highly commend for your uh, viewing pleasure at uh, WashingtonPost.com about the Washington Federals. Uh, great news hook, of course, with the uh, the launching or relaunching of the league uh, and a perfect excuse, uh, both for him in, in article form and us in podcast interview slash conversation form. Uh, his article is called, As the USFL Restarts, a look back at the Washington Federals' wild ride. And uh, we get into a conversation about not only the uh, the article, but the people that he talked to, Jake Russell did. Um, people like the pony. Craig James was part of that Washington Federals two-year um, uh, story. Uh, people like uh, Ray Yawk. Uh, people like Kim McQuilkin, uh, quarterback. Uh, for at least that first year of the Washington Federals and a bunch of others. Um, and uh, fun stuff. And it's a great story. Uh, the Washington Federals, in uh, your humble host's opinion, I think had the best logo scheme uh, of any of the original uh, USFL uh, teams. I'll fight you on that. But, um, you know, we can uh, agree to disagree on that. But uh, pretty Pretty darn good stuff. And it's pretty interesting, too, of course, that the Washington Federals <laughs> was not one of the teams that was decided to be reincarnated or brought back to life in uh, version 2.0 going on down there in uh, in Birmingham now. Um, uh, perhaps for good reason, as we'll get into our conversation with, uh, with Jake in a few minutes. Um, I think depending on your perspective, the Federals are probably the most woeful uh, of the teams from the original league. Um uh, they uh, posted uh, Nary, I think it was seven wins altogether across two seasons, something along those lines. Um, uh, they were, um, you know, uh, not necessarily the greatest thing on on the field. But then again, never, uh, n- neither were the uh, the uh, Pittsburgh Maulers, who we talked about a couple of weeks back with uh, our pal Tom Rooney. Uh, they only lasted one season and uh, were were quite terrible on the field. Um, uh, as well. But, um, you know, regardless of which ones are coming back and which ones we remember and stuff, and uh, the Washington Federals were unique, uh, like many of the teams were in the USFL uh, for their own various reasons. Uh, We talk about sort of the things that um, uh, beset uh, the team, obviously only winning four uh, games in their first season uh, and uh, winning only what is it? Three games in their second season. Um, they came uh, literally kind of uh, at the last minute as a USFL franchise. I think the original uh, intent uh, of the ownership group was to uh, have a team actually in Birmingham. And when the uh, Stallions were announced, um, uh, the uh, and Don Dixon uh, being sort of part of that, uh, that mixture, um, uh, the... Uh, ownership of Burl Bernhardt was uh, uh, taken away, I guess, if you will, to Birmingham instead, and instead was created a uh, sort of a somewhat slapdash and almost last minute kind of uh, minority ownership structure, which uh, immediately doomed the franchise to, uh, I wouldn't call it analysis paralysis, but uh, decision making became very difficult, right? You have many, many chiefs in the the house, uh, all of them with uh, ownership stakes and and making decisions both on and off the field uh, were automatically going to be difficult uh, because of such. Um, you have to also remember too that the Washington Federals uh, took the field only what five maybe six weeks after the Washington 
then known as Redskins, uh, won uh, their first uh, Super Bowl championship in, gosh, it must have been at least two or three decades since. Uh, so there was a halo effect going on, uh, at least assumed that the Federals would inherit uh, playing at the same RFK stadium. But the reality is quite different. The um, the NFL franchise had, um, you know, had been a long suffering uh, endeavor in D.C. and had finally cracked the code on winning the Super Bowl. So they were they were pretty much the thing and, and launching a brand new franchise in the wake of that. Uh, you could make the argument that uh, no uh, worse time uh, to launch a new football franchise after the uh, Redskins then had uh, conquered uh, the nation's capital. But it's all part of the uh, uh, interesting and often uh, dysfunctional uh, story of the Washington Federals. And you heard Jim Lampley and his uh, then new uh, booth pal, the great Lee Corso, uh, kind of uh, opining on uh, perhaps even some skepticism in the booth about what was going to happen. Uh, and that, by the way, was the first ever game and broadcast of the USFL uh, on ABC. Um uh, in 1983, let's see, that was uh, April. Oh, my goodness. No, sorry. March 6th, March 6th against the Chicago Blitz. And another key, interesting, fun fact story uh, about this franchise. Who who was the first coach to invade RFK Stadium to play against said Washington Federals? Yeah, it was the old coach, uh, George Allen. I mean, you know, this is a guy who... Um, uh, it, you know, essentially was, uh, you know, Mr. Redskins for so many years uh, as coach and stuff and, and his wily ways of, of gathering intelligence and all that kind of stuff. So a harbinger of not great things uh, already underway. It was a doomy, gloomy, rainy day uh, at RFK Stadium that day, and um, it didn't really get a whole much better uh, than that. But fun and interesting conversation, though, as we remember uh, what perhaps should be unmemorable, <laughs> the Washington Federals of the original USFL with our guest this week, Washington Post sports writer, Jake Russell, coming up in a few moments time. Fun conversation and uh, stick around. You will enjoy it. How about a promotional shout out this week, of course, uh, to our pal Judd Lasher and it's 417helmets.com, 417helmets. Dot com. It's collectible helmets and more. And a promo code for you there for 10% off all of your purchases is good seats. Use that early and often. Good seats. The promo code at 417helmets.com. And of course, the original USFL is celebrated in all its glory with every franchise's mini helmet. What are mini helmets? Well, like the name implies, they're smaller versions of handcrafted uh, quality grade, uh, mini miniature helmets. They're, they're basically made of the same materials from the same, um, uh, places as the big boys and their, their, uh, their big helmets. And, um, uh, they're, they're lovingly crafted. They've got all the original artwork, uh, and color schema. And of course, there's a gorgeous looking Washington Federals 1983 Riddell speed mini football helmet for you to purchase among all the other USL franchises at 417helmets.com. Uh, mini helmets from not only the old USFL, but the CFL and the World League of American Football, uh, the World Football League, the XFL, the original version thereof. 
uh, even collegiate helmets from the NCAA, the NAIA for you small college fans out there, uh, and even some mini baseball helmets, a relatively new offering at 417helmets.com from Major League Baseball and the Negro Leagues. Uh, and there's other great stuff there, too, all around. Hey, and you want to make a custom helmet, uh, mini helmet for your friends, uh, perhaps as a um, as a giveaway for your company, all that kind of stuff. Well, Judd can 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 hook you up and 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 spec out uh, the best of what you're imagining uh, in his uh, in his creative team there. Uh, all of that and more can be found again at four seventeen helmets dot com. And again, the promo code for all of your purchases and ten percent off all of them is Good Seats. Please use that early and often, and uh, give Judd a look. And uh, you're, you're going to find a few things for sure that you're going to enjoy. And why not a Washington Federals mini helmet? Why not celebrate the episode that we're going to get into right now? Here's our conversation that we had just last week as we uh, tinker with the current version of the USFL by way of our memories and uh, lamentations, if you will, <laughs> of the old Washington Federals. Here's our conversation with Jake Russell that we had uh, just a few days ago. Please, as always, enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a little bit of a sense of, of, of your background? You're a journalist by trade uh, and maybe sort of uh, how the idea to kind of uh, news peg a long forgotten team and, and frankly, one that's not sort of easily or happily remembered in Washington, D.C. Uh, to your uh, to your editors uh, as a story to pursue. Yeah, so I guess you can consider me part of that niche audience who actually enjoys spring football. Like, I watched the Washington Valor when they were in the Arena Football League in D.C. Um, I covered the D.C. Defenders for the Post when they were with the XFL for those uh, those five games they were there. Yeah, um, and those those monster was, uh, beer cups, right? The the snake. Uh, the, the beer snake, yeah. Yeah, legendary. <laughs> that put Audi Field on the map. <laughs> yeah, um, so I, I'm very interested in spring football. Um I grew up a massive football fan, so I mean, I'm not the type who gets tired of it and wants it to stop necessarily. Like, I even watched the AAF when it was around, not really as strongly as I'd watch the XFL, but I still watched it nonetheless. Um, for me, more is better for with, when it comes to football. Um, even if the play on the field's not, if it's bad, I'll just turn it off. So there's like no harm in having an extra league. So I thought a couple months ago, I said, you know what, with the, the USFL coming back, I figured it would be nice to take a fun trip down in memory lane and cover the old Washington defenders who, you know, growing up, I was well aware of, but obviously I never got to see, they predated my existence. So they'd always been a little bit of a, a curiosity with me and a fascination. So for me, I pitched it to my editors and um, they, they said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So whenever they tell me that I'm going to take the ball and run with it, no football pun intended. Um, so I went and I uh, reached out to uh, four former Washington federals, uh, Craig James, Mike Hohensee, Kim McQuilkin, and Joey Walters and got their experience on on the team and um, their experience with being in D.C., being with the Federals, and kind of how it compared to the rest of their careers. And it was just fun getting the chance to chat with them. And whenever they told me a story, it was almost like I was back there living that with them back in the early, 80, early to mid-80s before I was even born. So it was just a fun little trip down. I guess memory lane for everybody else but me. <laughs> but so yeah, what, it, was a, it was a nice, it was yes. a fun project to work on. Yeah. So what what did you think? What did you think about this team going into it? Obviously, based on research and and maybe a little bit of Jeff Perlman's book, our former guest. And and so, what did you think you knew about this team, kind of going in? Like, what was your perception before you even reached out to these guys? 
Well, I knew they were terrible. And part of the problem or part of the, the challenge, not the problem, but the challenge with this was coming up with a story to write about a terrible football team in D.C. without, you know, beating the readers over the head with the idea that it was a bad football team because they get enough of those stories year in and year out with the NFL team in town. So it was I was trying to think of fun, interesting, quirky, different things to write about with this team. And um, for me, growing up as a kid, I don't know if you uh, looked in the story or not and saw the YouTube video that's on there, but there's a YouTube video embedded in our story, in my story about the Federals. And it's about, it's a USFL football follies blooper video, which I'm 34, but I'm kind of an old 34. I grew up with VHS tapes. So I had that VHS tape as a kid. And as a kid, I'd seen the Federals portion of it. I was like, man, I didn't, it didn't really like click as like a five or six or seven year old watching that, like how, just how bad they were and how weird some of those situations were. Like when Ray Yawk pulled the gun on his players and then the team actually broke out in laughter when, the, when he pretended to shoot two of his players, like something like that would never fly now. So as a kid and I saw that I'm like, Oh, haha, that's a funny, interesting anecdote. But as an adult now in 2022, I'm like, oh, my God, that would never work. No coach would try to pull that. And if they did, they'd be fired and banned from sports immediately. So it's just it's also a kind of like a look back on the era of the time that they were living in, too, not just, you know, the team itself. So it was a, it was, it was really fun going back and learning about the, the history of the team and kind of adding some more information and learning more about the team that I already knew. Um, and it was it was just it was just fun going back and, and listening to the stories the players had to tell. Why don't we dig into that story among many, right? So, why don't you a little bit of background on on the coach? Um, uh, he was obviously a winning, you know, he was a proven winner in the CFL, and and I got to think that the mm-hmm. CFL was an immediate place to find some of the initial players and all that kind of stuff, not just for the Federals, but but the league in general. But but maybe a little bit about sort of what led up to this story because this was actually in the second year uh, or the beginning of the second year of what was already a very woeful. <laughs> situation at least on the field you talk about the gun incident yeah so yeah a little bit of a ray ray i don't even know how you pronounce his last name yuck ray yuck yeah yuck. there you go um almost kind of like how the team played on the field yuck um so for them he was uh i believe the fourth winningest coach in cfl history at the time when he moved on to the federals um for him from what i understand from at least kim mcquilkin he he was admittedly not a uh, member of the ray yuck fan club so that's what I understand from him, that Ray didn't necessarily adjust to the American game, I guess, as well as he should have. Um, uh, Ray or uh, Kim told me a story about how, and it, uh, I believe that's in the story as well, about how Ray would have golf clubs in his car and they would bring them out during practice and practice his golf swing. And then he would also leave. Uh, they were supposed to have a film session and go over plays and, and stuff like that in the playbook. And Ray would leave early to go play golf, and he would leave the meetings to uh, Dick Bielski, the offensive coordinator. So um, for them, it was kind of a it was a lot of blending of different experiences with the players and the coaches. And leading up to the incident, um, I believe it was in the first year because they were wearing white helmets in that video. So they wore white helmets for the first year, and then gray or silver helmets for the next season. You are so, correct, sir. Um, My mistake. Yes. Yeah, so offensive lineman Mike uh, Horton, who went on to become Gemini in American Gladiators, and defensive back Don Burrell had been uh, going at it in practice several times during that season, and they had done it yet again. So it was one of those things where 
you know, players were used to it. They're like, oh, God, here we go again. And then Ray Yock walks in and splits them up and goes in between them, has his hand in his right pocket of his green jacket. He goes, hey, hey, I've had enough of this. And he pulls out his gun and he pretends to shoot both of them. So you hear these blanks, these pops going off, boom, boom. And then the both players fall on the ground pretending to be shot. And then after a few seconds, they get up and the whole team burst out in laughter. Like it's, it's, it's just, just thinking about that is insane. Like you would never think that would ever happen, especially nowadays. That would never happen now. So thinking back on that story, it's just <laughs> like as a kid, you know, when you're a kid, you see things, you don't necessarily process it fully and completely the way you would as an adult. I'm like, oh, that's, that's quite an interesting little anecdote about the Federals because that video had about a five-minute segment on the Federals and how they had a bunch of close losses and they just found new ways to lose and heartbreaking ways to lose. And then obviously it led up to that shooting incident. But thinking back now, it's just it's, it's insane that a coach would even try that. But it, it worked. The players laughed. And it I mean, it didn't necessarily help on the field because they were still bad, but it helped at least break up the monotony of a difficult season and the tensions that were building up from the players. Um, so clearly him and Horton and uh, Burrell were in cahoots beforehand. So they had planned that in advance clearly. Cause then after that, the two players like went and high fived each other and then went to their respective huddles. It's just one of the more interesting things I've ever seen when it comes to sports. Yeah, I mean, I, I wow. I mean, just uh, the idea of how to how to break up tension. I mean, that's sort of a, a new level. But yeah, of course, that, that that could that ever. Well, let's also put this in context, right? So, uh, the debut of the USFL and the Federals as one of the first uh, uh, year teams. They lasted two seasons. Literally came what four or five months after the Washington Redskins, formerly known as. Uh, won the world championship in the Super Bowl, right? Which had been, I don't know, what, 40 years of, of a drought in, in Washington sports history. So uh, it, the best of times, the worst of times, right? To, to create a, a franchise in the same stadium just after the NFL championship season of uh, of the Skins. Um, <laughs> I, I guess in hindsight, that seems like a bad idea, but... Yeah, so started they actually the first game was actually five weeks after the first Super Bowl. The Redskins won the Super Bowl, so that's just that's one of those things. Because I asked the, the the players that I talked to, I said, "Did do you think, you know, following up on the beginning of the Redskins dynasty hurt or helped the Federals?" And the, the reactions are kind of mixed, you know. But ultimately, if the Federals had won, that would have kept the fans engaged. But it rained almost every home game at RFK the first year and the team was playing bad and finding new ways to lose. Maybe if they had won, the fans would keep coming back despite the rain, but following up on a dynasty like that, that's one of those things in my opinion that could have just as easily 50, 50 worked for or against the Federals because if the Federals had just won, that would just satiate the appetite of football fans in DC they would keep going. They're saying, all right, this is a nice extension of the Redskins dynasty we're witnessing here, or, a, you know, a talented Redskins team. Obviously, they lost. So clearly that drove fans away, and then the rain was not any help. And then the heat that came on later in the summer, or later in the spring and summer. So it, it was one of those things where it could have worked easily for or against them. But it was just kind of, if they had won, it would have been great timing for them. But since they lost, clearly bad timing to follow up on that team. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the weather because I remember some of those early uh, games and the Federals uh, games, usually highlights, because I was living in the, in the uh, New York metropo metropolitan area at that time. 
Uh, so as people may not remember, I mean, at least on Sundays, uh, they were regionally uh, divided, not unlike the NFL. So you, we didn't get many Federals games, maybe <laughs> by luck or by happenstance. Um, but yeah, I always remember it seemed like it was raining or cold or whatever. And and I think that's lost on on a, a, a lot of sort of USFL 1.0 historians, right? The uh, the And spring football enthusiasts for that matter, right? I mean, uh, a reminder, hello, it, it's pretty damn cold uh, for... And depending on where you are, lingering in places like Chicago and in Boston and New York and D.C. Um, and those first few weeks can be very dicey, very questionable and often very disappointing, especially when you're starting something from scratch, brand new, trying to get people to come. Although that didn't stop people, the curiosity seekers from that very first game. Right. That was probably the largest crowd they ever had. Yeah, they had uh, more than 38,000 at that first game, which is an incredible number if you think about it for a spring league. And it just goes to show even for like the worst team in the league that you can have even that kind of attendance. Obviously they weren't the worst team in the league yet. They were, that was about to come, but to have those kind of numbers is just an incredible thing to think about, especially when you compare it to now, the NFL has just a complete stranglehold on just the, the, they basically have a monopoly on the world of football, especially in the fall and sports in general, they are the king of sports in the entire world. It's just a, it's just a huge superpower when it comes to sports. So when you compare the Federals having 38,000 for the first game compared to the D.C. Defenders, who averaged about 15,000 in the, the three home games they had at Audi Field in D.C. in 2020. That, And thinking about that, that's a really good number that people had because Audi Field holds 20,000. If you get 75% capacity for an unknown venture like the XFL in D.C. because they never had it there before. In 20, uh, 2001, they didn't have it in D.C. And thinking back about how good of a number averaging 15,000 is, Thinking back at thirty-eight thousand, that's 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 almost hard to, to imagine. But also, yeah, it just goes to show how much the NFL has grown to where you can have fifteen thousand people, and that's a good number for an alternative sport, uh, football league. Yeah, and, and clearly, it's also a different media world, and uh, the reliance on tickets is uh, a, a little different, especially when television seems to be the front and foremost of the of the product and stuff. Well, I'm going to get your thoughts on on spring football generally near the end of this conversation. So, so don't lose that enthusiasm. But let let me go back to a few of the names uh, that you reached out to for for this piece. You mentioned one of them, actually, somebody that I knew from my days uh, is in the media agency space, uh, Kim McQuilkin, who was. Uh, I knew as more as a, a, a veteran of the um, television cartoon network uh, days of the Turner, the old Turner, Turner broadcasting um, part of Time Warner. Um, but uh, he was also the um, the the quarterback or basically the lead quarterback for this team. Um, but if you look at uh, at some of the um, some of the info on 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 Kim's career. So, first of all, interesting, right, because he played for the Skins for, I guess, 78 through 1980. So he at least was a known commodity, possibly to Federals fans, although the Federals didn't start until 83. Um, but he was also, I guess, depending on your statistics, uh, rated as uh, one of the one of the worst performing professional passers uh, in 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 the NFL's history, um, which is, I don't know, maybe a badge of honor or. or I don't know, but um, I, w w what did you expect when you reached out to him, and, and what did he sort of tell you? Obviously, a, a bunch of memories there. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect because I didn't necessarily know that much about the roster beyond you know Craig James and, and Coy Bacon. I didn't know that much beyond those two guys. Um, so I quickly learned what kind of personality Kim McQuilkin has. He's, he reminded me a little bit of Joe Theismann in terms of how 
he told stories. He he had a lot of energy looking back on his experience with the Federals, and he he was kind of a, a reporter's dream. Like he would give you stories, and he would hit on all your interview notes before you even asked the question. You wouldn't even have to ask anything. He would already hit on one story to another, and it was just really fun listening to his enthusiasm and just he had just such a quick snappy recollection of back then from 39 years ago. Um, it was just, it was just really fun just to sit back and let him do my work for me and tell me all these stories about his experience with the Federals, with his teammates, um, with the USFL. And obviously his time before that with the Redskins, um, that guy has a, a big personality and, you know, he was telling me stories about how he, um, about he was a roommate with um, Craig James and, and Craig James, I talked to him and Craig, <laughs> I told Craig that, uh, Kim, I had interviewed Kim and Kim, um, recommended me reach out to him. And Craig said, Oh boy, I have to respond now. I can only imagine what Kim said about me. So they, those two guys are still friends to this day. Um, so it was really fun just sitting back and listening to him, him tell all these stories about his time with the Federals. Craig James, probably the most, uh, known and, um, uh, I guess uh, even revered in terms of his skill, uh, a player on that Federals team. Um, what was his recollections? Because I, you know, this is a guy who you know was an absolute standout with the old Pony Express with SMU and uh, probably the marquee player for this franchise. But um, very little else, I think, if you look back at that roster in terms of uh, you know high caliber and you know uh, all pro type players for sure. Yeah, I asked all the players uh, kind of like to summarize their experience, and I think they all enjoyed the teammates they had on their team. They, I think they all got along. There was a pretty – I don't think there was much friction necessarily between the players aside from, you know, a couple fights here and there in practices. But I think as a, as a, as a team, they all got along. They just didn't have the talent on that roster. And, you know, every team essentially had their own superstar to market around. You know, the, the generals had the New Jersey, New Jersey generals had Herschel Walker and he was essentially the face of the league to start. Um, and Craig James was the federal's answer to, to Herschel Walker and to get him to join the USFL as opposed to the NFL was a big boost for the federals and a, you know, a big, uh, their big marketing ploy to kind of like, Hey, you guys know this guy. He played with the Pony, with the SMU, with the Pony Express, him and Eric Dickerson. See one half of the Fame Pony Express with the Federals. Come on down to RFK. Um, with James, his production didn't match the talent that he had, partly because the offensive line that he had in front of him was subpar, and the talent just in general was subpar. And eventually, injuries took over. And you told me, you know, he never really dealt with injuries much before. He had a pretty healthy track record before going to USFL, and, and that took a number took a toll on him. And he eventually kind of lost. I guess just the passion, the fun kind of wore off for him being the USFL. And eventually he worked out a deal to get released by the Federals and then join his um, old coach at SMU, Ron Meyer, up in uh, New England with the Patriots. And that's when he joined the, the NFL, was in the middle of the uh, 1984 season. So his reign in um, D.C. did not last very long. Uh, I believe, I forget the number, I think he played only 10 or 16 of the 26 games. So he missed quite a bit of time and didn't get to get the chance to fully show the, uh, the talent that he had. Why do you think in, in reaching out to these players and, and some of your research and stuff, why do you think the team was so poor? It seems like there are a handful of reasons, perhaps the ownership being 
maybe prime among them. Uh, that seems Byzantine, this ownership structure. Um, and, and it led to, I think, a lot of different sort of situations, including, I think, not even having sort of full access to RFK Stadium for practices and, and play. Yeah, from what I understand, uh, I believe I saw a quote from the uh, t- primary team owner, Burl Bernard, saying something along the lines of how their team was set up and established after a bunch of other teams had been set up. And they believe they could have, you know, could compete with the finances that they had on on deck. Um, when, uh, yet other teams were spending much more than them. Um, I think if they had a much more, uh, I guess, financially stable um, ownership group, they could have established a better roster and brought on better players. A lot of their money was also tied up in Craig James. Um, I'm not sure how much of the uh, Jeff Perlman book you remember, but there was a nugget in there about how Craig James had held the federal's hostage for about 45 minutes. Uh, it delayed his introductory press conference by about 45 minutes when his agent slash SMU booster held the federal's hostage for $500,000 for an extra $500,000 raise. And I asked James about that, and he said he didn't really remember the particulars, but he didn't regret, you know, doing that. And then, you know, if the Bernards, you know, Bernard and the ownership group didn't have that kind of money to put towards other players to build a better roster around him. That's that's on them and not him. So I, mean, I guess that's kind of a forward thinking mentality for players because now players are thinking about themselves more often than they used to saying, because they obviously understand how short an NFL or football career can be and how tough these injuries are on players' bodies and over time. So, um, yeah, I think if the Federals had a, a more financially stable ownership group, they could have fielded a better roster despite, you know, kind of having a little bit of a, a slow start after a bunch of other USFL teams began. Yeah, I, I get the sense that the Federals were one of the last uh, teams uh, to get sort of solidified. I, my understanding is that um, uh, Marvin Warner, who wound up becoming the owner of the Birmingham Stallions, because he was, I think, originally from or his hometown was Birmingham uh, and he was originally slated to be um, the owner of the Federals, but um, when the league, I guess, announced that they were going to go to to Birmingham as a franchise, uh, he went there instead. And I think that that also maybe set up maybe the scramble to kind of get some kind of uh, 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 ownership sort of structure in place, which seemed like it was like a like a, a limited partnership uh, that had a, a general partnership element to it wrapped around some other ownership thing. It seemed like uh, I'm guessing that uh, some of the decision-making uh, perhaps maybe around personnel or, or budgeting and all that kind of stuff may was probably a little bit more complicated and worse uh, relatively quick given um, the, I guess the relatively last uh, stages of getting this franchise off the ground. But you know, when you're setting up a league, right. As we've talked to with uh, the late Dennis Murphy, you know, uh, hallowed founder of many challenger leagues over the years, you know, it's really about getting that footprint established and, you know, by whatever means necessary. And, you know, you kind of maybe keep your fingers crossed and and say a couple of prayers before the first game to hope that it all comes together. But it ordinarily doesn't always happen that way. No, it doesn't. And, you know, you brought up the whole personnel angle, the, um, the general manager that the Federals brought on, Dick Myers, was the assistant general manager with the Redskins before that. But his specialty, from what I understand, was, you know, in finances, not necessarily football personnel and building, you know, a top roster. So that I don't think that helped them in, in that department and building a team either. Um, yeah, they were it was kind of like they were in a way. Uh, curse is probably a strong word, but they were kind of set up to not do well. And that's what Craig James said. He said 
you know, you probably could have brought Joe Gibbs and the Washington Redskins, a whole coaching staff, and we still wouldn't have won. We just weren't set up to win. And that's kind of a common theme. The players kind of all agreed. You know, we had some talented players, but we didn't have enough of them. And the results bared, you know, the results showed it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the pairing of McQuilkin. McQuil- I can't even say his name today. My goodness, McQuilkin <laughs> and uh, and James as uh, I guess as roommates in training camp and whatnot. And um, back to McQuilkin for a second. Um, I guess well, first of all, James is just coming out of college, and McQuilkin's been around, if you will, um, in the league with the Falcons, and then for a couple of years with the uh, with the Redskins as Theismann's largely as his backup, right? Um, but it had been a couple of years since McQuilkin had actually played pro ball before he came back to the federal. So this wasn't necessarily like an immediate halo of the Redskins for him. I mean, I, interesting. If this is going to be your lead quarterback, he hasn't played in a couple of years. Uh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and and Kim told me that he was actually originally on the um, Philadelphia Stars minicamp roster, but uh, Myers remembered him from their time with the Redskins, so they worked out a deal for him to come to the Federals. And I guess he was their established veteran. I guess they wanted to have a, a veteran presence somewhat with Mike Hohensee coming fresh out of uh, the University of Minnesota. I guess they wanted to have a veteran presence to go along with the, the young rookie with a big arm. So, yeah, that whole pairing him with Craig James was quite the interesting uh, dynamic because they both kind of established and they talked to me, you know, Craig was more focused on football and, and Kim was at that point in his career and his life where he was just more interested in, you know, going out and having fun with his teammates as opposed to, um, you know, establishing a dominant USFL career. I mean, obviously he enjoyed the game and enjoyed his teammates and enjoyed playing and, and, you know, tried, you know, try to put some effort out there, but he wasn't as interested in establishing his name as Craig James was. Cause Craig, you know, James knew what was ahead of him. He knew that he could have been an NFL first round pick and he knew that he has, you know, I don't know how much they talked about it in the early eighties, but how much of a brand he had at the time and how he kind of had to establish that. And, and, you know, make a name for himself. So it was kind of interesting having these two, you know, different, these two guys with these two different points of their careers. One was not necessarily as focused on his career as the other. And, you know, obviously it's, it worked out personality wise because they became good friends and they're still friends almost 40 years later. Um, yeah, it was just interesting to think, you know, what led, led Ray Yawk to pair these two together in training camp. I mean, I guess it makes sense. You know, you have your starting quarterback going into the season and then your star running back. But obviously, I guess in football years, a 10-year difference is, you know, a big gap in terms of, you know, establishing a roommate and establishing a rapport with, you know, someone on and off the field. But it it turned out uh, on the field, it didn't turn out too great. But off the field, they've they've turned out to be uh, lifelong friends since. Right. What's this? How about SportsHistoryCollectibles.com? Oh, boy. We love SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. You've heard us talk about it forever uh, since we began this show. One of our earliest sponsors, our pal Dean Mitchell, out in San Diego. And as the name implies, it's memorabilia from all those leagues and teams that, that came and went and thrived and failed, but nevertheless shaped the North American sports landscape of today. And if you're looking for ticket stubs or mini helmets... Uh, DVDs, pennants, uh, jackets, even uh, newspapers or uh, stadium replicas, magnet schedules, media got you name it. It's all there for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And we're talking about the best 
in forgotten sports history uh, in basketball and soccer and football and baseball and hockey and all kinds of miscellaneous sports like tennis and racing, uh, the stadiums, the Olympics even. Um, just amazing stuff. And, you know, you, you probably have eBay on your brain when you're thinking about looking for some of those items out there. And sure, eBay is pretty darn good, I guess. And there's, of course, some high-end auction sites out there, too, uh, for sure. But SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is unique in that it focuses on those things that this year podcast is obsessed about, which are things that aren't around anymore, in, t- in particular teams and leagues and, and various related ephemera. And the good stuff is also highly uh, photographed and well-described, so you know what you're getting, and the prices really can't be beat. You don't have to worry about losing out on bids at the last minute and all that kind of stuff. And trust me, Dean's got stuff that you're looking for, and it's getting new stuff, not new stuff, but new old stuff, like inventory, that's it, that's what I'm looking for. All kinds of refreshed inventory all the time. Uh, so uh, it's first, it's just a sight to behold. So you'll you'll lose hours of time just looking and and ogling, if you will, digitally, uh, the items from your childhood or from various followings of teams that you might have uh, just plain old forgotten. And uh, to see uh, those items there for you and well photographed, uh, you're just going to just uh, you're going to be amazed. Then after looking at more than a few of them, you're going to say, gosh, I got to have me one or a bunch of them. And that's where our promo code comes in handy. And that's Good Seats. A promo code Good Seats for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com for 10, no, 15. Yes, 15% off all of your purchases. Again, our thanks to Dean Mitchell and his pals at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code Good Seats for 15% off all of your purchases. As they say, you'll be glad you did. Thanks, Dean, for your sponsorship of the show. And now back to our conversation. In your Federal's piece for the Post, you you had a nice uh, uh, anecdote uh, around uh, uh, that first game and the setup of that because the, and the irony of it. Um, Chicago Blitz and a guy by the name of George Allen being the first game. So in addition to being mere weeks after his former franchise in the NFL uh winning the the uh the 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 Super Bowl and he being the coach of the opposing Chicago Blitz in that very first game um maybe you can sort of give a little bit of detail about sort of of that story because um not only did they literally and figuratively get blitzed the Federals did that first game but um I think the uh, conspiracy theorists out there would, would say that George Allen kind of was already on the case even before that game was even announced. Yeah, so D.C. football fans, you know, anyone attending the game at RFK were well aware of Allen's penchant for, penchant for paranoia and his idiosyncrasies and his willingness to win at whatever cost. Like, he's the same guy who traded the same draft pick twice. Um, he would turn off the, the uh, opposing team showers at RFK. Um, so he would, he had very interesting ways about him. He would have a, uh, when he was a Redskins head coach, he would have a retired police officer, um, patrol around the fields in the woods looking for spies. Ironically enough, it's almost like he was projecting, um, several years forward. Um, so as the coach of the blitz, um, actually, so the lead up of our, um, our March 1st, 1983 story 
it was about Rayok and the team and how they had, you know, had their first practice outside of RFK leading up to the game. And the lead up of the, the lead of the story was, quote, Rayok was looking for spies in search of George Allen's agents of terror and espionage at the Federal's first workout here yesterday. He pointed to a dark tower looming above the RFK stadium practice field. Quote, I thought I saw someone climb up there, the Washington coach said. The tower, though, was free of human presence. Little did he know his instincts were, <laughs> were pretty good. He should have trusted himself and not joked about it. Um, he, he was really so worried, Perlman, wasn't he? Hmm? He was really worried, wasn't he? So, so I can't tell that because I don't know whether he was, you know, being funny or he was actually paranoid about, you know, George Allen's reputation and all that stuff. But according to Jeff Perlman's book, Football for a Buck, about the USFL, um, he had a note in there about how Allen sent a couple of low-level Chicago Blitz employees to Washington to film Federal's practices. Um, and what they had done was they had worn yellow USFL staff windbreakers, and they told Rayock and a GM Dick Myers that they were um, USFL film crew personnel. And so the player, the, the Yock and Myers, clearly did not do background checks. I guess that wasn't much of a thing with the USFL in the in the um, in the eighties. Um, so those two employees had free reign to film Federal's practice, and a blitz assistant coach told Perlman that we knew every play they were running. There were no surprises, and shocker, the Federals lost twenty-eight to seven, and that was when fan interest for the Federals peaked. That was when they had thirty-eight thousand fans in the stand at RFK to see a, a beloved coach on the opposing sideline that they love. Little did they know that they were going to be them and their new team are going to fall victim to his antics. That's just one of those little, I don't know, I love little things like that where there's so many historical tie-ins. Like it's almost like turns into a rope. There's so many tie-ins like, you know, with George Allen returning to RFK for the first time since coaching the Redskins. And then with him pulling off all this espionage on the team, it, I don't know. I just, I just love this. those kind of interesting nuggets. And that I had to include that in the, in the story. Like there was no way I was going to not have that in the story. So when you were talking to these guys, I mean, uh, there's clearly there's there's some hagiography and some sort of like funny and and anecdotal kind of, you know, memories and stuff and and a bit of fondness, I'm sure. But but I'm sure there's also a bit of wistfulness in that. um, And and even into 1984, I mean, you had some other players come in like a Reggie Collier to kind of uh, quarterback the team. And, you know, he was certainly Mm -hmm. a team at the time and had done fairly well in the first season with the Stallions in 83 and and that kind of stuff. But um I mean, you mentioned it before, um, you know, they, they were woeful in the first year and they were probably even a little bit more woeful the second year. Um, what, what, it, it had to have, have, you know, at the time kind of gotten to these guys because, you know, a lot a bunch of these players, you know, used to playing decent football and, and in winning uh, in winning ways in their pasts. And, you know, they're kind of just. They've got this big gigantic anchor around their necks because they just weren't winning. That that had to that had a grade on them. Yeah, that's one of the things I was thinking about. You know, during during the process of doing this story, just you know, I peaked athletically, I guess, at ten. Even then, I was mediocre at best. <laughs> and to think, you know, as someone who becomes like a professional, like and gets paid for it, and they're a grown adult, they're trying to provide for themselves, trying to provide for their family, they're trying to establish a future for themselves professionally and personally all these little factors that play in and to not just lose but to lose as much as they did and in the manner in which they did it it just had to take a you know 
psychological toll unless they're really good at compartmentalizing this kind of stuff and saying, you know what, I'm a football player, but it does not define me as a person. I don't know what, I guess every person is different. You know, you have, I think they had 40 some players on a roster back then. So you have 40 some different personalities, different ways of viewing life, different ways of viewing the game that they play, you know, and who knows how many of them actually play it because they're talented. Who knows how many of them play it because they actually love the game. Um, but I just had to imagine, you know, as a competitor, that just took a really big toll on them. And, you know, when, you know, when I asked all the players, they said they enjoyed playing with each other. They enjoyed their experience with the team that the losing was just what sucked the most. And for lack of a better word, um, it was just the, the, you know, the grind of not really knowing, <laughs> you know, when your next win is going to be, when you're actually going to have a winning streak or, you know, what the results are going to be, you know, if you're actually going to have good results coming up, I think they won, um, I believe they won three of their last four in their first year. So I guess they had some sort of hope going into the second season, but, uh, yeah, those hopes were quickly dashed. And I just have to imagine as a competitor, it probably took a toll on them at the time. And hopefully they got over it pretty quick. Hopefully they're not still harboring, you know, any resentment or stress from it because, you know, at the end of the day, it's just sports. And that's coming from somebody who loves sports. I've always loved sports, but it shouldn't let it, you know, necessarily dictate your life, dictate your personality, dictate your moods and emotions, you know, once you step off the field, at least to it. Obviously it's understandable to let it affect you a little bit because as a competitor, you want to win every single time you step on the field, but it shouldn't necessarily affect you beyond, you know, once you get home, it shouldn't affect your daily life in a negative manner, at least. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I guess you have to sort of frame this all in the, in the time period, right? This was a league that uh, arguably was was uh, uh, by many accounts uh, perhaps a, a an absolute uh, strong and potentially viable challenger to the NFL, at least in a spring sort of uh, uh, echo, I guess, of a fall season. And and Lord knows we know the whole story of, of sort of what ultimately happened. But you know, again, you look back, and and I, you know, in my social feeds and stuff, when the second version of the USFL was announced, right? Uh, noticing that the Washington Federals were not brought back and there's obvious reasons, right? They only won what is it, seven games after of two seasons. Um, yeah, seven and 29. Not great, right. Bob. <laughs> so, but, um, but actually I think they're, uh, it's interesting though, that the Pittsburgh Maulers, probably an equally uh, bad team, and they only lasted one season in Pittsburgh. So you could make an argument that, that maybe Pittsburgh was arguably the worst, the worst of the two. Um, but they're back. Right. And so it's just it's very interesting because I, I you know, as we talked with our, our pal Tom Rooney, he, he a descendant of uh, of the Pittsburgh Steelers Rooney family and, and, and active in in getting that franchise up and running and going uh, back then in Pittsburgh. Um, it's just interesting. I, I one of the first questions I asked him was, you know, where's the nostalgia for the Maulers and why are they back? Um, I mean, at, at the at least the I think the Federals had probably one of the the, the coolest looking logos and and color schemes of of all those teams and and I, I guess the question in there is um, you know why not Washington uh, they've got a stadium for it and stuff um, you know um, if you're going to bring it all back why not uh, why not the Federals because uh, you know at least the logos will probably sell a little bit better than some of the other ones. Yeah, I think this is just a theory on my part. <clears throat> no one from either league has said anything publicly, and I just, I'm just, I'm just guessing this is the case, and it's probably an educated guess on my part. I think they just don't want to have teams in the same cities that would possibly be in the XFL. So I don't think, you know, if the defenders are coming back, I don't think they would want the Federals to be back and having to fight for a space to play football because Audi Field is obviously the best space for a spring professional football team. 
So I don't think they want to have any, you know, cross pollination with, you know, cities, you know, having multiple spring football teams and then having to split up the revenue between those two teams and possibly having one or both of those teams fail because they have no revenue coming in because it's a competitor in their own town. So I, that's, that's just my theory as to why the Federals aren't back. I don't know if the defenders are actually coming back or not. Um, I think it would be good for the town. It would be nice to give them an alternative to the commanders, who you know, the former Redskins, now current Washington commanders. They'll give them a nice alternative in the spring of uh, 2023. And I think based on the attendance in 2020, there's a lot of reason to bring them back. You could, you brought up the beer snake. You, you can see the enthusiasm that the fans had. And at those games, fans were wearing like jerseys of like almost every team from every sport. It was just like a conglomeration of people uniting to watch this one team. It wasn't just like, it wasn't just, you know, unhappy Redskins fans going to Audi field to watch an alternative. There was a bunch of that, of course, they wanted to see something different and something more fun and fresh and provide them with a better game day experience than they get at FedEx field. But I think for, um, I think it would be smart of the XFL to bring the defenders back. And if they do, that was potentially why the federals weren't chosen as a, a USFL 2.0 team this time around. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good thought. And, and, um, and this sort of leads me into sort of a broader question, uh, being a spring, if you will, football enthusiast, uh, as we as stated in the beginning, um, uh, and, you know, whatever becomes of this new USFL, uh, uh, obviously it's going to be domiciled in Birmingham and, and and not actually be in any of these cities. And I think even in year two, it's not even envisioned that they would be in these cities, but who knows? And that's if they survive the legal challenges, I think, around the copyrights and the trademarks and stuff, which I think is the part of the suit that the the judge literally just yesterday or the day before kind of said there's there's viability in that claim. Um uh, but I, I guess the question I would sort of have is, um, if, you know, with television being different the way it is and streaming being a viable uh, uh, component of that, and these uh, unwittingly soccer-specific stadiums, like in the case of DC United and Audi Field, you know, you've got now 20, 25,000 seaters that arguably are more conducive to something more fledgling in football versus having to fill cavernous stadia like you know like fedex field or you know met stadium per se in 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 east rutherford or whatever right i mean you can have fifteen thousand people and it feels full ish without having to worry about sort of the fan experience and let alone television which is kind of really the beast that needs to be fed yeah exactly and i don't i'm still not sure i don't know if it's you know been explained or not if it has i completely missed it I'm not sure exactly why they chose the one city model for the regular season. I don't know if it was because of, you know, the pandemic or because it was financially better for the league to start off that way. I think it's but because think the spring league that Brian Woods had set up, which is the the shell of what this is sort of evolving from, um, was a kind of a one city kind of thing, although it's a whole, a whole different matter. And then Fox just said, well, let's just let's just make it, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I. As a starter, it makes a lot of sense. You cost contained, but you know, if you're going to have actual cities in the mix, you know, it's going to be that's a tough transition if you're going to do that. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense to me. Like, why would you have location names in front of the team nicknames if you're not going to actually play in those locations and establish a foothold in those markets and try to build your own fan base? I, I don't know. I don't know if the you know playing in Birmingham all regular season and Canton, Ohio for the postseason will work. Um, I'm going to watch. Um, I don't know how much I'm going to watch, but I'm going to try to watch as much as possible. We all do, don't just, we? We all get sucked in in the beginning, don't we? 
Exactly. And it's just a matter of time as to when the numbers drop off. Um, but for me, I don't know. I, I don't know if this makes me a traditionalist or, you know, get off my lawn an old fuddy duddy. Or I just, it doesn't make that much sense to me to play in just one city, especially if you have, you know, locations in front of the nicknames and you're trying to market to those groups of fans. Why would you not play in front of the said fans that you're trying to market those teams to? And it's, it's kind of like, kind of like with the uh, PLL Premier Lacrosse League, they don't have any location names in front of the team nicknames, and it's just a touring league. It just goes around from city to city. And I guess for lacrosse that works, but it's a little bit hard for me to get into that league if there are no, you know, home bases for any of the teams. And it's kind of just like the Harlem Globetrotters going around the country and traveling. I just, I don't know. I don't know if that makes me a bad, you know, sports viewer or what. But it's kind of hard for me to see that lasting. Well, for PLL, they've actually done really well in the lacrosse market. That's actually worked for them. So clearly they're right and I'm wrong business-wise with that model for them. But as a, as a viewer and observer, I don't know. I, I feel like there's you've got to kind of you got to have some form of establishing a foothold in a location and developing rivalries. You know, giving fans a reason to you know support their specific team and to defend themselves against other teams. But if you have them all just in one location, I don't know how many people from Pittsburgh are going to go all the way down to Birmingham to watch the Maulers. You know, even if the tickets are 10 bucks, like they say, and kids get in free, which is a great deal. But, you know, that also goes into if the tickets are so cheap, are you really making any money? So how are you going to go off of the money model and say, you know, we're doing this to save money? Well, you're not making that much with the games anyways, with the ticket prices that you have on that. So I don't know. I just, We'll see, but um, hopefully next year, if the USFL is still around, it'll actually you know go to the locations of the teams that they're hosting. So well, we'll I'll, see. I'll, I'll see your cynicism and raise you because I mean, I you know while <laughs> I, I similarly and maybe more for spectacle and potentially future episodes, uh, which is more selfish, right? Uh, I you know I I, <laughs> I, I I I the curiosity in me uh, it gets peaked, but I you know I. When I first saw that the USFL brands and labels and names were coming back, I, I immediately felt like, wow, this feels like a naked grab to put some level of past history onto – it feels like uh, – Marketing nostalgia. Well, that or or lipstick on a pig. I mean, it's it's kind of – I mean, I'll, you know, I'll be more blunt, right? I just – it feels – and again, we're not we're talking about teams, obviously not the Federals in this case, but but the Maulers and, and you know, the the USFL, you know, was interesting and in various pockets successful, but ultimately it fell apart. And there were numerous reasons and not just Donald Trump hijacking it. I mean, there were teams in there that were, you know, kind of on life support and, and it wasn't sort of like all, uh, you know, uh, uh, roses and, and sunshine, right? Uh, and there was real divisions. So, so I, you know, if you're going to bring something back, I, you know, like the Maulers, I, is somebody just because it's a Pittsburgh team going to slap on, you know, a logo onto their shirt and fly down to Birmingham for a couple of weeks? I, I don't. It just feels embarrass, embarrassingly desperate to kind of um, uh, rejuvenate. Although, again. You know, in this day of social media and, and streaming and even things have dramatically changed even in the, the number of years since the original USFL. So, you know, OK, if it's a head start to have sort of some logic around teams and 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 uh, uh, and logos and, and all the merch and stuff that comes around that, I guess. OK, but I, it's an odd thing to remember and bring back in its entirety whole cloth because, you know, it, it was um, 
it was interesting and it wasn't always uh, successful that original league. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the successes of the league even though it ultimately became unsuccessful was having a reigning Heisman Trophy winner going to the USFL. You're not going to see anything like that anymore. You're not going to see, you know, the top players in college going to a spring league. They're going right to the NFL and there's no reason not to. The money's better, the prestige is better. The uh, marketing opportunities are much better in every way, shape, and form. So, for for one of the things with the USFL this time around, they do have a great have great TV deals. Them being on Fox and you know NBC to start to kind of get their you know get a foothold in the country and kind of get them eyeballs on the product. That's a fantastic thing for them. That was very good on on their part, smart, and something that you never really see. You don't see Fox and NBC simulcasting games ever. So for them to do that is a good thing for them. But we'll see how much that lasts. I saw that you know other games are on going to be on like TBS and USA, I believe. So we'll see if fans will actually gravitate towards those types of channels the way they do with March Madness during you know the NCAA tournament. Um, but for now, I'm a little bit skeptical, especially with the XFL coming through next year with highly established ownership that you know can market it a lot better than the USFL and who you know actually played the game and you know has this background in being a big brand himself with the rock, you know, being a former football player, being a guy who has this kind of charisma from his days with, you know, as a wrestler in the WWF. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if the USFL lasts beyond this year, but I mean, either way, you know, more football is better than no football in the spring for me. So I'm going to be watching both ways regardless. Call me a sucker if you want, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I think there are there are many of us out there uh, for various reasons. I mean, some some want to see a train wreck and some want to see spring football. And, I, you know, in some respects, this is almost like the, the, the AAF versus the XFL a few years ago again. Right. Where now in this case, the you know, the, this new and, and fairly quickly uh, put together USFL is getting the the you know, the first year out of the out of the shoot, and then the XFL is going to have year two again, and we'll know it's going to uh, disrupt it. But here's my last question for you. So um, this story, like, were there any people that you would have liked to have talked to for this? And or do you think there's uh, even more substance to this story? Like, is there a, a longer form or even a book or something or, or mini documentary or something to even go further with this uh, as Obviously, I'm talking to a fan as much as I am a reporter on this. Or is that a bridge too far for this for this story? A book? I'm not so sure about that. Um, also, uh, I, I feel like I could have had this story could have been twice as long. Like my editor cut about a thousand words off this story, which you know, in my opinion, I don't know how much you know how much editors agree with this, but I think it's my opinion to have it's better to have too much than not enough. That way, you can cut from the good stuff as opposed to trying to just pile stuff into a shorter story without you know, with less substance. Um, I would have loved to have done a much longer story on this. I don't know how many other parts there are to it. Um, but it was just very fun going back and talking to these guys and listening to these guys and, and building on the stories that I already knew about and hearing new ones. Um, not all of them were included, unfortunately. Um, I don't know how many other people I would have been able to talk to, um, to add this. I think my editor was fine with the, the six, uh, I talked to six or seven people on this. Um, including more than just players, some reporters who covered the team and um, a reporter who covered the team for us for the Washington Post back then, David Remnick, who's now the um, editor of The New Yorker. Um, and I talked to Jeff Perlman for this book, um, or for the, um, who wrote the USFL book. I talked to him for this story, and he obviously, and you know, his book was a passion project, so obviously he enjoyed talking about the Federals as well. Um, I also spoke to uh, Rick Snyder, who covered 
uh, the Federals back in the day for, um, I believe, the Sports Network back then, but now he's a freelancer locally here in D.C. Um, um, I didn't include any quotes from him, unfortunately, because there was just not enough space, but he helped give me some uh, kind of reestablish some of the stories that I already heard, and he gave some of his memories with the team. Um, so it's just fun just going back and hearing all these tales from everybody about how, you know, what their experiences were like and how it compared to their other professional experiences. Um, I'm not sure how much more there is to do on this beyond this or how much my editors would want to <laughs> would want to hear about the Federals because, you know, it's only me and like one or two other people who are actually really interested in spring football in the office. So we'll see. But so far, this has been, you know, uh, widely applauded from the people that have spoken to me about the story. They've enjoyed it so far, and they've, they've all said it was a fun read, which you know, not that I'm biased or anything, but I agree. I think it's a fun read for people, especially on, you know, a day like today where, um, you know, the USML is just starting out and people can kind of blend, you know, a little bit of the old nostalgia with the new and kind of getting, you know, adapting to and understanding the new format of the league this year. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to see where the, uh, where the league goes now. Our mighty thanks to Jake Russell, our new pal from the Washington Post. The article from April 15th, check it out. It's called As the USFL Restarts, a look back at the Washington Federals' wild ride. Again, April 15th, uh, WashingtonPost.com. And um, excellent stuff. He's a great follow. You're interested in Washington, D.C. sports. Um uh, for example, he's uh, written uh, the 100 Things National Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. A uh, bunch of other great columns and, and whatnot. You can follow Jake on Twitter at underscore Jake Russell, two S's, two L's, at underscore Jake Russell. Uh, you can follow him on Facebook at by Jake Russell. Uh, I think he's on Instagram as well, and I'm sorry I don't have that in front of me, but just find him. Subscribe to him. Do whatever you got to. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, you have some Washington Federals memories that you'd like to uh, leave for him uh, as well. Maybe he uh, missed out on some things in the article. Why not pepper him with all kinds of reminiscences? Uh, God forbid uh, we could uh, someday get Craig James uh, or maybe even Kim McQuilkin uh, or some other folks from the original Washington Federal story. We uh, continue to keep digging for those kinds of folks and those kinds of discussions, of course. Uh, you can follow us and our various endeavors at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, you can follow us on social media, of course. We're on Facebook. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. And on Twitter, probably our most active social media platform, you'll find us at GoodSeatsStill. Email is hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, we have a newsletter. Find the uh, link on the website. And uh, thank you to Jerry Payne, of course, uh, Sergeant at Arms, and um, all kinds of editorial goodness this week for uh, this week's episode. Thank you, sir. Uh, and our kind thanks to all of you for listening. Every single one of you, I appreciate it very much. Whether you email us, ping us, social media, engage with us or not, uh, we see the numbers. They continue to grow in places all over the world that completely surprise us. Uh, and uh, we continue to try to soldier on uh, in our own little independent way. Um, we don't ask for, for much, just uh, listenership, uh, perhaps uh, 
patronizing our space uh, or taking advantage of our offers from our advertisers, uh, buying a book or two through our website and the links and all that stuff. Uh, and um, we appreciate your support uh, uh, to no end. Until next week, thanks for listening, of course. And uh, take care and stay safe, everybody. 